You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it's very exciting to be here. We actually have a big show this week. Um, In addition to my interview with my very special guest, Mikey Hogue, Mikey is the founder and co-chair of Part the Cloud, which is an annual fundraiser for um, Alzheimer's research, which is very, very personal and dear to my heart. Um, I lost my mom during COVID to Alzheimer's. I lost my grandpa years ago and actually both my mother's sisters. So I'm very honored and thrilled to have Mikey with us. And we're going to be talking about all the great things that are going on for research. Um, Later in the show, you'll hear from our lifestyle expert, Sherry Morrison, and Sherry's going to be profiling Ellen Warner. Ellen Warner is the author uh, and photojournalist of a new book, which I have right here because I read it, and it's going to be a fabulous read. It's the second half, and she interviews and profiles 40 women who talk about their life and, and what they're doing in the second half of their life. And at the very end of the show, we have a very special segment with our Wellness Watch expert, Dr. Shalja Dixit. And she's joined by one of her colleagues and partners um, who is doing incredible work for women underserved in uh, New Jersey and New York area. So we have a lot of great women on the show this week. So now I'm very honored and excited to welcome to the show, Mikey Hogue. Mikey, thanks for being here. Susan, thank you so much. Thank you for um, 
you know, asking me to be a part of this. I'm so thrilled to be able to tell the story. I am sorry that you are touched by this disease, but mm -hmm. I really appreciate the um, ability to be able to bring awareness to something that's very near and dear to my heart and to my family's. Well, one, you know, when I read about your work, I was um, immediately drawn to you and your work because you seem very hopeful and yeah. proactive. And, you know, I always want to kind of stay in that space. Um, you and I both probably in the back of our mind have that worry, that Absolutely. that small voice. We don't uh, ever want to come down with this disease. It's it's really horrific for not only the patient, but all of their family members. Um, but as always, I want to learn a little bit more about the little Mikey Hogue growing up. And um, I love how you described yourself growing up in New Jersey as a, a tomboy. Mm -hmm. um, tell me, um, what were your aspirations when you were little prior to your education and, and career in marketing? Um, I grew up, I, I had a wonderful upbringing. Uh, I, I was one of six. I was fifth out of six three girls, three boys. Um, I think I grew up always wanting uh, never to have my brothers, you know, get that far ahead of me. So athletics was uh, very important to our life. Um, education, hard work. We grew up on a farm. So um, before I started school, you know, there was a lot of jobs, not, not a big working farm, more of a gentleman's farm, but, you know, chickens and horses and what have you. Um, I had two wonderful parents that were madly in love with each other and, and extended their love to the kids. And I had a big Irish family. So we had lots of gathering, lots of chaos. And I love chaos. I love, I love conversation. I, I love being around people. I, I get energy from people. So um, what I'm doing now, again, invigorates my soul. And um, it's, it's sad that I've got on this journey, but I, I'm, I am hopeful. I'm very hopeful for a cure. Yeah. And, and I should say, I didn't say at the top of the show that you've lost both your mom and dad yes, to I Alzheimer's. Have. So that is why it's such uh, an important cause for you. Um, another kind of fun fact is that you were a horseback rider mm -hmm. and you qualified for the 1988 Olympics. For the shortlist. So I was one of eight. Um, yeah. uh, again, being grown up at a farm with horses and all, that was something that um, I picked up in New Jersey at a public barn. It was a troop is how I started, you know, it was $8 an hour and you'd show up and you'd pick out the horse's name and, you know, single file, that whole thing. But it gave me uh, great confidence, great organizational skills. Um, I, I was competing all through high school, all through college. And then I took two years after college to try out for the Olympics. And like I said, I made it down to the last eight. Um, the last weekend, my horse pulled his hamstring and... On the Monday after, I walked away and really never got back on a horse again. Ironically. Wow. So, interesting. Well, yeah. You, you, I would say you have um, a competitive nature, you know, competing with the brothers and then competing as an athlete. Does that help you in the work that you're doing? In other words, is that a, um, a motivator? Because I will tell you, fundraising is not easy. It's really right. hard. Um, I, yeah, I, absolutely. Also in horseback riding, men and women are equal. So people always say to me, you know, how do you, it feel going into a room of men? I don't see genders. I don't see, I see opportunities. I look at the world as uh, dots 
And when I, something like I'm doing now, I love to connect the dots. I love seeing like, wait, this person has a background or they're touched by it. Shouldn't we all work together? I don't, you know, I don't understand why we're not all collaborating because the only way I can make a difference, you can make a difference. It's the village. And I look at the world like an opportunity to connect all the pieces and bring them together. So the writing um, gave me uh, great confidence to, you know, anything in front of you. Um, I almost broke the world's record. I looked at it like that wasn't a big deal. It was sort of like that was another obstacle on the road. Of course you would go, you know, welcome that opportunity. Um, so I think it, it allowed me to do a lot of public speaking. I did a lot of commentating uh, with the writing. I did um, sort of color commentator a couple of years after I uh, finished the sport. I enjoy that. I, I had no training, but I just, all of those things are another door that can lead to an, another road that you just don't know where life's going to lead you. So um, it's, it's a great been- outlook. Yeah. It's a great outlook to have yeah. that, you know, the excitement for life and, and what's around the corner. Um, you've described yourself as an old soul. Yeah, I do. In what uh, way? Had, or when did you recognize that? I, I think the riding, because I was on the road a lot, I was always on a different path. So during high school, you know, I left, I would get all my work done ahead of time and leave Thursday night to some competition. Uh, college, the same thing. And so being on a different track, you know, not being around for the normal weekends of college and you were always with older people. I was always, you know, in, in horseback riding, I was competing against my coach who was 55 years old and I'm a 21 year old. You, I was always surrounded by older people and therefore you had to act a certain way. You had to think a different way. Um, you know, it wasn't, the noise doesn't get in the way. It's more, what's the prize at the end of the day. So with that, um, I don't think of things being not difficult, but they're always obstacles. And every disappointment to me forces you to think about things differently. And then, you know, the road sort of turns. So, um, yeah, so it's all well. Tell me um, a little bit about how you got into um, sports marketing. Your your first job, I believe, out of school was with HMG. Yes. How did that opportunity come uh, well because the again the with the um horseback riding and then i was doing a lot of public speaking for the world cup finals during my riding so um whether it was for sponsors and different people would ask could i get up could i open up a um a reception leading into it we went to a bunch of embassies so i was always speaking being on the u.s team i did two summers in um europe So that was like a natural progression for me to go into sports marketing. And I was on the um, sponsorship side. We didn't at our firm represent individuals. It was more corporations. So, you know, Maxwell House Coffee wants to be involved with skiing. There was just natural, um, again, those two dots that I talk about. It was like, if you want to be USA Today, we did the all-star balloting. So you just look at where can certain sponsorships get the biggest impact. Mm. So with Alzheimer's, then it's just, um, it's another progression, I feel like, of what I used to do. Did you ever have any aspirations for media? Uh, it, it wasn't available for women. You know, we, I did do some of the col- color commentating, but I mean, horseback riding was 
you know, it might've been once in a while it got TV time. So, uh, and I remember going for any form of media, you know, you're, you are a very good speaker and you, you jumped at those opportunities. Thank you. I don't ever think I am, but thank you. Um, Journalism and, and that kind of stuff wasn't, wasn't a course. There wasn't something I could have taken back then. It wasn't available um, with the realm I was going through. Okay. Um, let's talk about your dad and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, tell me a little bit about him and your relationship with him. Um, I adored my dad. Um, he was very humble, very hardworking, grew up with, you know, in a New York City, one bedroom apartment kind of thing. No money, um, earned a scholarship to go to Yale. He played on the lacrosse team while he was there. And that was significant because when the Korean War broke out, he had the whole lacrosse team sign up and join the war. Uh, While he was at war, um, there was a a bomb explosion. So he was riddled with shrapnel. They did not think he was going to make it. Um, He did, um, obviously. And he was awarded a Purple Heart. And for him, it was his mind that got him out of his economic situation. And um, he was always grateful, very faithful, spiritual, um, that he could, with his skills, get him to a place to be able to provide for a family that his single mother couldn't do. So uh, we were always raised with a great sense of patriotism to hard work, to, um, you know, the educate the 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 need for a wonderful education. And um, in, in the end that his brain is what failed him is what made him the great person that he was Mm. around 65. He started showing signs um, and his pride that he accomplished what he did was taken away because he could no longer, you know, he could no longer figure out how to tip, at a restaurant, you know, things that math wise had given him such great success. And you just see that frustration and that sense of um, just demolished, you know, by the disease. Mm. Was he a storyteller? You know, Irish love to tell stories. Yes. Uh, Yes. A lot of storytelling, never about the war. We never heard a word about it, Mm -hmm. but would tell a lot about his upbringing, not having availability. And yes, the American dream, if you work hard, um, you know, you can change your situation was a great pride in what he was able to accomplish. Listen, we're going to go into our first break. When we come back, I want you to describe the moment you got the call and learned your dad had Alzheimer's and you decided, you know, it, your your mind didn't go right to what we have to care for him. Of course you did. But you said, I'm going to do something about it. Okay. I, I want to talk about that. Great. Stay Thank with you. us. If you're listening on 1210, our watch team will be coming in and we will be right back with Mikey Hope. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Finance Watch. At Penn Community Bank, we're committed to giving small business owners the tools and resources to help them succeed financially. As a female entrepreneur, having financial confidence is an invaluable skill to advance your success in life. Whether your business is well-established or in the earliest stages, you're probably used to being a little out of your comfort zone. And that's a good thing. When you're doing something you wouldn't typically do, you're learning and growing. Too often, women let the fear of finances hold them back in personal life decisions and even business decisions. 
That's why financial literacy is crucial for women and especially female entrepreneurs. When you seem stuck, network. Reach out to successful, innovative, money-savvy women who have been where you are. Financial confidence for women and women business owners in particular isn't talked about enough. Have you ever gotten a question that you just missed because you felt intimidated? As a business owner, you've probably asked yourself everything from what type of checking account is best for your business to how to prepare for yearly taxes. Talking to someone like yourself, who's been there before you, is sure to make you feel comfortable. Start by connecting with other entrepreneurs online that seem in a similar situation, like the service they offer or location. Send a message, introduce yourself, and tell them why you want to connect. What's the worst that could happen? Once you build the confidence, try attending a networking event, particularly for female business owners. Take it even further by joining a female entrepreneur association in your area and get involved. Truth is, even on our most confident days, we could still use some assurance. Women love to see other women achieving their goals and dreams. So reach out, connect, ask questions, and learn. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. Hi, and welcome back to the show. You're watching Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this week by Mikey Hogue. Mikey is the co-founder and um, chair of Part the Cloud. By the way, Part the Cloud, let's say where that name came from. Um, at the time that we were, we were beginning this event, the Alzheimer's Association was going to create this giant cloud for keeping all the research data together. So we thought, let's play off our desire that everyone starts to share their research information. And all of a sudden, we would, could get there faster if there was one hub. And then so we used the cloud metaphorically to say, okay, in your brain, it's kind of cloudy. Could we part it so that it's clear one day? And, and that's, that's sort of where it came from. Okay. Yeah. So I, I really think it's, it says a lot about you. Um, people get bad news all the time, every day. And, you know, instinctively we're proactive, we're scared, we're worried, we crumble. So you said, I'm going to do something about this uh, when you found out that your, your dad had Alzheimer's. Tell me about that call and that decision. So as I shared with you, I'm one of six and all my siblings live within an hour and a half of my parents. I live in California. They are on the East Coast. So when we found out, um, I knew I physically could not help in the day-to-day -day matters that uh, my sister and my other siblings were helping. But I could help on research is where I felt like we could make the biggest impact. So uh, my husband and I made a donation to the Alzheimer's Association for strictly research. And then the next 10 years, I went to all the conferences. I was up to date on where they were um, investing and what kind of trials they were working on. And I kept noticing that we were always investing in basic science. And that is great. It's, it's, it's invaluable, but basic science doesn't get to trials for 15 to 20 years. Mm. And I, uh, selfishly, we're all on the time clock. You know, I'm looking at my siblings and we're looking at my parents going, okay, so is it all of us? Is it some of us? But it's happening. And how do we get a drug on the market? So I'd love to say that I had that aha moment when I got the call with my dad, but it was more, I think when you first are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, there's no answers. So you kind of go down this dark hole of like, what can we do? 
There's nothing to take. It's not like when someone says you have cancer, you say, well, where are you being treated? And who's your doctor? With Alzheimer's, you kind of go, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I mean, it's it really is a dead end street. Yeah. So we got involved with research um, and then kept thinking, uh, you know, we got to be doing more. We have to be going faster. And a friend of mine said, you should do an event for Alzheimer's. This is 10 years after we've made our first donation to research. And I said, I don't want to talk about it. It's not something you really want to discuss with people. It's sort of a, again, it's a, a conversation buster. And she mm-hmm. said, but if you won't speak about it. Who will? And then my mom got diagnosed and I really felt like, okay, is this a sign? Mm-hmm. So that's where part the cloud started. Um, I gathered a group of women who were, who I knew could put an event on and most of them were touched by it. Not all of them. But it really was going to be, we'll do one event and we'll call it a day because I just truly, truly in my heart did not believe anyone would show up. I thought, you know, you have a handful of friends that will show up and your family kind of has to show up. But on a Saturday night to ask someone to go to an event for Alzheimer's is basically saying, do you want to go to the nursing home? You know, the, it, it had such a horrible stigma about the disease that I just didn't think anyone would give up their night to come and listen to something that is so depressing. Um, so anyway, we launched forward. It's 2012, 10 years ago, we launched our first event and we got Tony Bennett to come and sing pro bono. And we sold out. And when I say sold out, it's in, uh, um, we live in the Bay area. We live in, you know, part of Silicon Valley. It's not a, it's not really a social area. You know, San Francisco is a little more glitzy. New York's glitzy. Where we live, it's, it's, it's not as social as you would think. So 320 people is really like the max of what we can hold around here. And it's sold out. And we raised $2 million that one night. Oh, my gosh. And I thought to myself, we have, we've launched onto something that none of us knew about. You don't raise that kind of money unless there's a lot of people touched by it. Well, and that, I look, my question, as you're describing that, do you, you know, from were shocked. all of those people that all knew someone or had someone? Well, we didn't, you don't know who's showing up. And really we thought if we raised a hundred thousand dollars, we would have been thrilled. You know, could we just pay the expenses for the night? But when we raised $2 million, it was like, wait a minute, there's got to be a lot of people who are quietly going through what we're going through. And, and the, the point of the event was to say, one, can we raise an awareness? And two, could we possibly raise money towards research? And so we were, all of us, I think, were quite stunned at, at, at the success of the You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow. <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply evening so then we thought well we can't do this every year the, the area can't handle it and um i met mark shriver at a he was giving a presentation about his dad sergeant shriver who passed away of alzheimer's and mark had just written a book so i met him and i said hey would you ever come out to our area and he said by the way i'm coming out in january and i said well great so i then created an event about around him coming and he talked about his book so that's now our formula. We do a black tie event and then we do a, uh, a book luncheon. And that's what we've done for the last 10 years. But even the luncheon raised a million dollars. So and that is not, it was not intended to be a fundraiser. It's intended to be more of an educational segment. Not that we had a lot to t- talk about, but it's allowed us to say, hey, we can do a big fundraiser, but then Let's get everyone up to speed and really try to peel back the onion on what this disease is all about. So when you think about moving forward, um, and and I'm always looking for um, my guests who are have to be fundraising and are, are looking to raise money, how do you get people interested in your cause when there are so many other um, causes out there specifically cancer, ALS, um, right? What, what, it's working for you. And obviously, um, Mikey, you have a, a wonderful network. You know people and um, you have a wide network, I'll say. Um, but what can you share that has worked for you in just getting people's attention to, to be interested in your particular, in Alzheimer's? Right. I would say um, it's taken for every big donation we've gotten, it's almost three to five years of the person attending seeing that we're being really thoughtful about our, um, our message and, and trusting that we are putting it to really good work. And um, I think those are all the components for our event. It's really important for us to educate, touch somebody, and then have them leaving feeling good because you want them to come again. You don't want them leaving down. And so that's the formula we use for the events, but now it's grown into so much bigger than these events. You know, the events are now hopefully becoming a celebration of the work we do over the years. So now, you know, we're looking at a two-year campaign that we're going to go for the next um, amount of money. And last, you know, the last two years, I mean, we raised $35 million. Wow. It was really incredible. Wow. It all in, so on the West coast in California, well, actually now we're, we're nationwide. So okay. Good. Um, it, uh, Bill Gates, uh, his father and his uncle, his dad just passed away of Alzheimer's. It's something that's near and dear to him. It took me about three years to, um, to get through to him. And I still have yet to meet him, but sent him a PowerPoint presentation of what we're doing, where the money is, where it's being spent. And, uh, He finally answered one day and said, okay, we need to talk. Um, Negotiations went such that he would donate $10 million if I could raise $20 million. 
And he does not do a lot in Silicon Valley. He's, you know, Seattle or sort of worldwide. So we were very touched that, um, you know, the first time I presented to his team, I gave them my stats and I, I was going through the whole uh, presentation. They said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm going through. They're like, if you don't think you haven't been analyzed, questioned, you know, everything that was in your PowerPoints have already been um, an, a- analyzed, you're crazy. So, you know, that's where it started. If you're sitting here. We already know what you've done. Yes. Well, you know, you try to go, oh, okay, let's go. So um, <laughs> what it's allowed us to do and also to say, you know, you know that he's not doing it as a friend. We've never met. Um, he's mm-hmm. doing it because we're doing really good research. Yeah. So his team and our team have gotten together. And I, when you said I'm hopeful, I have chills down my spine when I think of the different areas that we've been, um, invested in and the people we have gotten behind. It, I am so hopeful. I really am so hopeful. Uh, well, you're so very good at what you do. I mean, it's it's very hard. And, and you have to be patient because, as you said, things can take two, three, four, five years before they come to fruition. And you talked about numbers. I had here... Um, Total research investment in clinical research now totals $65 million in 65 research projects. Yes. That's really yeah. impressive. It really is. We're in nine different countries. Um, we, What I'm really thrilled about is the 60, well, we just added the last couple million, but the $60 million that we have that are already out working in the community has earned a billion dollars in follow-on funding. And to me, you know, we do events, we plan things that to be able to touch what we are doing to me is uh, been the most rewarding thing that we've done so far. So um, I, I'm, I give restricted dollars to the Alzheimer's Association. They put their science panels together. So when we get an application, there are 33 researchers from 13 countries that are reviewing all these applications um, blindly. The reviewers are, you know, it's the head of the Mayo Neuroscience Department, the um, Brigham Women's. We ha- it, it is so amazing the people that the Alzheimer's Association pulls together who are specialists in these fields to read these applications. And then a lot of times they'll say, hey, can we do a higher dosage? Can you add another site? Um, and it, they are asking a lot of these grantees, but the results, you know, whether they fail or, or go through, they're the data that we are going to get from all of these is amazing. So we, um, we're pretty thrilled, as you could see. Yeah. And, and we're very frugal about every dollar goes to research that we, um, are, uh, we earn. And that's, it's exciting. It is the government. I think the kind of trials we do, they're at 69 trials and we're at 65. These are pharmaceutical trials. Uh, we do a lot of repurposed drugs. Most people won't invest in repurposed drugs because if you're a venture firm, you know, and the drug's already out on the market, you're not really going to make a lot on the. Um, what, rep- what, what does that mean, repurposed drugs? One of, um, so we have a. Um, a drug that we have put into trials in Colorado that is good for a bone marrow transplant. Well, the researcher feels like it might bring the inflammation down and it also will help the cells regenerate, but it's already out on the market. So we know it's not toxic. 
So then you immediately go, well, can it help the brain for Alzheimer's? So those are the kind of projects that we are uh, funding. Uh, very much outside the box. We're trying to think differently than we have in the past. We go at a much faster pace, a much more aggressively investing in things. Um, we're doing a trial with UCSF. We gave them two and a half million dollars, but the reviewers asked if they would have different sites. So then they included Northwestern and UPenn. And lo and behold, the NIH, which is the National Institute of Health, found out about this trial. They've given them $5 million more to include Mayo Clinic, Houston, and uh, Las Vegas. So when I can see a trial go, that would never have happened without Part the Cloud funding. And now we're in five different locations of the most prestigious places in the U.S., you know, treating thousands of people. It, it really, um, it really fills up my soul. Well, listen, I, I'm your biggest cheerleader oh. and I'm so appreciative of your coming on the show and sharing your Thank life you story. I, I really, I love watching your segments. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm quite honored. I'm uh, humbled and I really appreciate the chance to be able to talk about something that is so passionate to me. So yeah. well, we'll, we'll be staying in touch for sure, because I have to figure out how I'm going to help. Next up, you'll hear from Sherry Morrison, our Lifestyle Watch expert, and she'll be joined by author and photojournalist Ellen Warner. Stay tuned. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Now, more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome to the Lifestyle segment of Women to Watch. I'm Sherry Morrison. Today's worldly guest is an author and photojournalist, Ellen Warner. Welcome to the show, Ellen. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Sherry. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for some time now. In the beginning of the summer, I read about Ellen and this mass, this past March publishing of the second half, 40 Women Reveal Life After 50. I hadn't read the book, um, yet I was intrigued as much about the book as I was about Ellen and how it all came about. Ellen, uh, could you tell us a little bit about where you're from and your education? Well, I grew up in New York City, and I was the fourth of five children. I went to school in New York. I went to boarding school in Connecticut, and then I went to Wheaton College, where I majored in art history. And that was the beginning. Well, it sounds like when we spoke earlier this week that you did, uh, just after college or at the end of college, quite a bit of traveling. And over the years, you've done a lot of traveling. Is this how you developed an interest in photography? Yes, the year that I graduated from college, I took sort of a Thelma and Louise kind of road trip down to Mexico City, up the west coast of the country and across the country and with various people camping out, staying in a pension for university students down in Mexico City and traveled 15,000 miles and took a lot of pictures. And then the next year I got back to New York and I worked at the Ford Foundation editing grants and took a night course in photography. And then the next year I said, could I possibly just work here in the morning and take a career course in the afternoon? And so that's how it started. Well, that's interesting. And it is so nice that you had the flexibility with the people with the Ford company that uh, they would yeah. allow you to do things like that, continue your education. Yeah. The photographs in your book are fabulous. Um, you can see a lot about each of the women just from your photos. Beauty is comprised of so many qualities, the experience, character, art. Um, I read a lot of reviews uh, about your book, and so many people were talking about how beautiful the women were in the pictures. 
um, it's, it wasn't all about makeup and, and making themselves up. It was about their surroundings and, and what they had done in their lives. Uh, you started compiling information and interviewing, taking photos in 2006. So this has been 15 years in the works. What sparked the concept? And how did you come up with the religious, socioeconomic, and cultural diversity um, with this group of women? And how did you how did you figure out what you wanted to ask them? <laughs> well, it started on a little Greek island called Patmos, as you say, 15 years ago. And I was photographing a beautiful French woman. And I photograph a lot of people, you know, I do a lot of portraits. And I always try and talk to them to make them feel comfortable and usually talk about pretty much of nothing. But she had just turned 70. And I found myself really interested. And I said, well, what does it feel like to be 70? You know, how have you changed? What did you learn in the first half that's helped you in the second? And what advice would you give to somebody my age? I was in my 50s at that point. And so that was the beginning. And then it just grew from there. A couple of days later, again, on this little island in Greece, I was sitting at a cafe and I noticed a beautiful woman over in the corner. And I said to the woman who owned the cafe, who is that? She's lovely looking. And she said, she's my mother. And I said, well, I've just started this project. And could I possibly interview and photograph her? And she said, well, you could photograph her, but she doesn't speak English. But her granddaughter could interview, you know, I mean, could translate for you. And um, I asked very personal questions. You know, what was the happiest time in your life? What was the saddest time in your life? And afterwards, I realized that that granddaughter probably had a conversation with her grandmother that she never would have had otherwise. And then just time went on. And whenever I was on a trip somewhere, whether it was for business or you know, pleasure in Bali or Saudi Arabia or Oman, wherever it was, there were always women, you know. And so I was always on the lookout for for a woman to, to photograph an interview. And it just, and friends recommended people. And sometimes they didn't work out, but they recommended other people. And so one thing led to another. And it was a wonderful journey, really, because it was something I was terribly curious about. And what I've discovered after it's been published is that there are a lot of other people that are curious about it. I mean, people in their 30s and 40s are fascinated. What do these women say? You know, what? how can I prepare for, for older age? And then women my age in their 70s or older, you know, see things that they resonate with. And yes, I feel that way. Or, you know, I've never thought of that. That's an interesting way of approaching it. So it's really been amazing. It's sort of taken off, which has been a surprise to me and to the publisher to the extent that it's been, um, you know, it has taken off. Well, I, I'm reading the book. I haven't finished the whole thing. And what I love about it is with all of the different women, I can just pick it up. I, I pick it up and I just open to a page. And if it's something that I haven't read, that's what I read. So it's, it's kind of nice because you don't have to follow any special order. Um, but the one thing I was really, I enjoyed was your foreword was written by Erica Jong, also an author and prominent in the development of second wave feminism. Huge right now. What a timely selection with the May vote overturning Roe versus Wade and somewhat of a reemergence of the equality in the workplace during COVID. Um, how did you, was there a special way you came up with Erica or did you just? Well, you know, she lives in New York and she's really an icon in the women's movement, as you say. And she seemed a natural. And I had a friend who knew her daughter 
And so she passed it along to her and said, would she be interested? And she was. So it was just, you know, very nice that she did it. Yeah, great timing. Great timing. Yeah. I, I won't ask you who your favorites are in the book because I'm sure asking someone, you know, does this make me look fat? There's no safe answer um, when you have somebody that. So do you have a few women you would like to tell us about? Yes. Well, you're right. I have no favorites because all these women, I sort of, you know, I fell in love with them, really, which is why they're in the book. Um, well, a few that I could tell you about is, first of all, a woman in Saudi Arabia um, who was one of the first women doctors in Saudi Arabia. And when she was 15, she and a group of her friends decided that they didn't want to study geography as women were supposed to study. They wanted to study science like their brothers. And so they went to the headmistress of the school and asked her if they could do that. And she said, I don't think so, but you can go and talk to the person who's sort of the superintendent of education. And they went to talk to him and he said, no, you know, you can read, you can write, time for you to get married. And then without asking their parents on Friday, which is their holy day, their day off, they dressed up in their school uniforms and they went to see the king. And the king at the time, King Faisal said on Fridays, Anybody who has any complaint or something that they're interested in can come and see me. So these little girls, I mean, they were, I guess they were about 15 and there were how many girls? I don't know, eight or something, waited in line and waited in line and waited in line. And the king's assistant came to him and said, it's time to go for your prayers. And um, he said, you know, I'm going to wait because I want to see what these girls have to say. And King Faisal was six foot six, and he leant down and said, what can I help you with? And they knew that they would be really nervous, so they'd written out what they were interested in. And so they gave him this piece of paper, and as he read it, she said she'll never forget that moment as long as she lives. Her face, his face lit up, and he said, this is what I want for our country. I want women to be educated. And starting next week, you can study science. And he followed their progression all the way through and said, anybody who gets marks above 90 can go to medical school. And they all did. And then the question was, where were they going to study in the United States or in England or what? And he said, no, you have to study in a Muslim country, go to Pakistan. So she went to Pakistan and she came back, um, the first woman neurologist in Saudi Arabia. Well, Ellen, um, thank you so much for sharing the story behind the second half and your time. Um, for more information about Ellen, her work, the second half, speaking engagements, go to www.ellenwarner, that's W-A-R-N-E-R.com. Um, thank you again, Ellen. It's been a real pleasure. I can't wait to finish the book and hopefully uh, maybe I'll find some good men for you to interview. <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much, Sherry. Sure. Sue will be right back to close out the show. Keep living your dreams, ladies. Now, the women to watch, military watch. 75 years ago today, the U.S. Air Force officially separated from the U.S. Army and became the newest branch of the military. That event marked a milestone in U.S. military history as our profession of arms, once reserved for land and sea, now took to the skies. Hi, I'm Sean Casey, Senior Director of Communications for Military and Veteran Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. First, I want to wish airmen past and present and their families a happy birthday and thank them for their service to our country. 
Second, I'd like to share with you some interesting facts about the Air Force, one mentioned earlier if you caught it. The first aviation units in the U.S. military were formed in 1907 under the Army. Throughout World War I and World War II, air-based warfare was conducted by the U.S. Army Air Force. Also 75 years ago today, then-Air Force Captain Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in his rocket-powered aircraft. The science, ingenuity, and human endurance behind this historic flight paved the way for man to eventually fly beyond our skies and touch the stars. The Air Force is also the official tracker of another famous aviator, Santa Claus. In 1955, a newspaper ad included the phone number to the U.S. Air Defense Command and told kids that it would connect them directly to Santa. Not wanting to disappoint the curious youngsters, commanders at the base had their personnel give Santa's current location to the callers. The tradition continues today. The Air Force has been at the forefront of countless technological innovations, significantly enhancing the way our military fights, moves, and communicates. Thank you again to all our Air Force veterans, service members, and families. Hi, and welcome back to the show. Um, what a great show today. We're really uh, profiling a lot of women and the stories that Ellen Warner shared. Um, the author of Second Half was so inspiring. That's it for another week of Women to Watch. Next week, I'll be joined by Stacy Hauser, the founder of The Narrative, a brand and PR company. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.